Bienvenidos to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, with Julieta Kusnir, Nina Serrano, and Vilma V. In tonight's program, Nina Serrano speaks with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz about her book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and her upcoming KPFA event on October 2nd. Julieta Kuznir speaks with film director John J. Leaños about his film Frontera, Revolt and Rebellion in the Rio Grande, which will be playing as part of the Cinemas Latino Film Festival taking place right now around the Bay Area. Rafael Jesus Gonzalez will also share his thoughts about the celebrations for independence across Latin America in the month of September, as well as his poetry. We'll also share with our listeners a calendar of upcoming events. We'll bring you all this and more, so stay tuned. Empezamos with Noticias Sin Fronteras with Vilma V. Buenas noches, this is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending September 21st. Chile. Government officials in Chile announced last week the arrest of three individuals suspected of being behind the bomb attack that injured 14 people in the capital of Santiago on September 8th. Two men and one woman are accused of planting the homemade device near the Escuela Militar subway station in the affluent neighborhood of Los Condes. About 150,000 people pass through that subway station daily. Chilean President Michelle Bachelet called the attack a, quote, terrorist act, one of the most cowardly we have seen, end quote. There have been over 200 unsolved bombings in banks, gyms, embassies, and restaurants in Chile over the last five years. El Salvador. Last week in Washington, D.C., activists from the U.S. and El Salvador engaged in a loud protest against the World Bank and the Oceana Gold Mining Company calling for an end to gold mining in El Salvador. The demonstration specifically targeted a World Bank International Tribunal case that pits an Australian-Canadian mining firm against the government of El Salvador. The case involves a $300 million lawsuit filed against the Salvadoran government for allegedly reneging on a past agreement to mine gold within the country. The controversy is linked to the broader issue of governments signing free trade agreements that benefit narrow business interests at the expense of the environment and indigenous communities. Bill Warren, a trade policy analyst for Friends of the Earth, stated, quote, This is a paradigmatic case that illustrates a huge problem all over the world, end quote. Activists contend that the mining company's demands are at the expense of El Salvador's sovereignty and democratic rights. Panama The government of Panama has formally invited Cuba to attend the 7th Annual Summit of the Americas, which will take place next April in Panama. The invitation came despite opposition by the U.S. government, which has blocked Cuba's participation in the summit for several years since first initiating the meeting of Latin American leaders back in 1994. Cuba has diplomatic and business relations with every country in the Western Hemisphere except for the U.S., which has maintained sanctions against Cuba for over 50 years. Brookings Institute senior fellow Richard Feinberg, who helped organize the first summit while working with the Clinton administration, stated, quote, The U.S. faces a tough choice, either alter its policy toward Cuba or face the virtual collapse of its diplomacy toward Latin America, end quote. The Vatican. Earlier this month, Pope Francis issued his strongest statement yet on the violence currently plaguing the Middle East. In his traditional Sunday blessing, Pope Francis lamented the brutal manner in which children have been killed, women kidnapped, and people massacred in the Middle Eastern region. He stated, quote, All this gravely offends God and humanity. War is not to be waged in the name of God, end quote. The Pope later named Cardinal Fernando Filoni as his personal envoy to Iraq. Previously, Cardinal Filoni had served as the Vatican's ambassador to Iraq and Jordan and was one of the few foreign diplomats who remained in Baghdad during the U.S.-led bombing of that city back in 2003. Venezuela this past weekend on International Peace Day, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro announced an ambitious plan to disarm its citizens. President Maduro revealed that his government would be investing over $45 million to establish 50 new, quote, disarmament centers throughout the country. 
Back in 2013, the government implemented new penalties for illegal weapon possession, with sentences for up to 20 years in prison for those convicted. President Maduro promised to build peace with love and justice and stated, quote, We are building peace from within, and for that you need disarmament, end quote. According to the United Nations, Venezuela has the second highest peacetime murder rate in the world after Honduras. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item or feedback that you would like to share, email us at larasachronicles at kpfa.org. Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Cusnid, and we are very lucky to have in studio with us filmmaker John J. Leaños. He is a filmmaker who's doing big things, and he's put out this animated short that I know is going to not only spark a lot of conversation for anyone who watches it, but it's just really going to break down a lot of information in terms of an untold history. He recently produced Frontera, Revolt and Rebellion on the Rio Grande, and we are lucky to have him here to talk about this piece. Thank you so much, John, for coming in. Thank you for having me. So, John, this was, for me, I got really riled up. It's really incredibly well done. It tells a story that's often ignored. You get to learn a lot of a time period that I think is really fuzzy. Generally, people think, okay, you know, indigenous folk, Las Americas, and then there was some violence. And then, you know, unfortunately, then we've lost a lot of cultura and autonomy. And then we are where we are today. And there's just this huge gap. And, and we don't learn these things in school. So for someone who hasn't yet seen Frontera, what story did you set out to tell? Right. The story is of the 1680 Pueblo Revolt, which today is remains a sacred story for the Pueblo people of the Southwest in northern New Mexico and parts of Arizona. It's a living history still invoked today, even 333 years after the revolt occurred. But there are many ways to tell the story, many perspectives, many versions, many gaps and guesses in, in putting this together. But the Pueblo Revolt is a significant story that many of us are not aware of today, right? And inside the, the, the borders of New Mexico and Arizona, parts of Arizona, people know the story. It is, it is, it is there. It's present. But outside of it, uh, and in the chronicles of the makings of America's master narrative, it has really been ignored. But for me, you know, the 1680 Pueblo Revolt represents a time in American history where the 99% expels, banishes, and removes its occupiers, right? It has been framed as the first American revolution by Joe Sando, a Pueblo historian. And it is really a rebellion that occurred uh, with two dozen diverse indigenous communities in New Mexico and Arizona. And these, these communities who, who spoke seven different languages, had different religious practices, cultural belief systems, and in many instances didn't even like each other. They came together to coordinate a decolonial uprising leading to a cultural renaissance. So that really kind of breaks down some of the many reasons why this is so important for us to learn about and understand. I think that part of the story that is so fascinating is uh, it's just energizing to hear about the the victories that were held. Here in California, we definitely don't get this history. So why is it important for people in California to understand this? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is really important, I think, for Native, Chicano, Latino, and other colonized communities to see these, these moments, these stories of, of triumph and struggle and resistance in fresh and creative ways. And that's one of the reasons we use animation and cartoons and, and music and rap to tell the story so that it has a different kind of accessibility and entry points to different um, audiences, right? It's especially important for us to learn alternative perspectives in history. And one that shows, you know, shows us that transformation and change is possible through negotiation, through communication, and ultimately through collective action. 
That's the voice of John Jotaleanos. He is a filmmaker, professor at UC Santa Cruz, and he's really spent a lot of time digging deep and telling this very important story. He has produced this incredible short animated film that tells a huge story in a short amount of time. It's really fun to watch. And part of what's so enjoyable about it is that the writing is so good and that the voices are so unique. Can you tell us about how you crafted these personajes, the different characters in the story really come alive through animation. I'm someone who generally is like, animation, really? And I was like, so excited about it. And it was because the voices were so real and very easy to connect to all the characters. Tell us about that process. Mm, thank you. Uh, yes, you know, well, there's a certain multivocality, a certain very different meanings and different perspectives where this this story can be told. In the, the chronicles of history, it's really documented through the Spanish eyes and through native oral histories, it, it has been told. So there, there's a lot of kind of missing aspects to it. And so I, I really wanted to engage the audience in different narrators, right? Different pers people speaking about it. So we have a, a character who's in the casino in northern New Mexico playing the slots and telling the story as if it happened yesterday. Um, there is Conroy Chino, who is a uh, well-known TV anchorman and documentary native producer who also s speaks of the stories, tells the narration from his perspective. Um, there's also a rap in the song, and the, the lead rapper becomes a, a sort of narrator in, in, in a way to kind of tell a different perspective from indigenous indigenous visions, right? So it is really kind of, for me, a way to diversify the aspects and the, and the, and the perspectives and the ways to tell the story. And that's why we try to develop many d different voices in this piece. That's the voice of filmmaker John Jotaleanos. He is the filmmaker that produced this great piece, Frontera, Revolt and Rebellion on the Rio Grande. And although I really recommend that people go out to film screenings to watch this because it'll really spark a lot of dialogue and conversation, you can also share it in your classroom. You can share it with your friends and family just because it's available online, which is really rare and really wonderful. So, John, how can people access this really incredible, not just teaching tool, but for me, really inspirational piece to kind of give people the energy since we kind of feel pretty beaten down from time to time. And this can be a great way to give people a sense of aspiration and hope. Oh, well, oh, that's um, well said. And, you know, it's, it's really important because history is always told to us from east to west. And so taking this perspective of telling a story from south to north, north to south in the west, and to acknowledge that there, there was a history here before the gringo, the, the colonization happens, is really um, vital. So, you know, it is accessible and it's, it's kind of designed to be accessible to, uh, to people online. It's, it is on pbs.org. And it is part of um, Hispanic Heritage Month. And if you go to Hispanic Heritage Month uh, at pbs.org, you'll find a link to it. Or if you go to pbs.org and simply type in a search for Pueblo Revolt, it should come up. And it is called Frontera. It is also playing in the San Francisco Latino Film Festival, Cinemas Film Festival. It will be at the Red Poppy House tomorrow, Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. in the Mission District of San Francisco. And we featured a couple other films that we'll be showing at that same festival at the Red Poppy. And so people can see a lot of great work. And what's so exciting about that is you get to meet the filmmakers, you get to talk to people, you get to share the same energy. Because although this is really wonderful, I feel like I wouldn't want to watch it alone. Because you just are left just buzzing with, you know, what's going on? Or, you know, how did this happen? Or well, this is a story I didn't know. And what do you know about that? And it leads to a lot of Googling. You'll end up doing a lot of Googling after this. That's <laughs> the one thing I have to warn people around. Thank you so much, John. So this is really wonderful to hear about this project. So tell us about what's the next step with Frontera. Well, Frontera really is designed to kind of tell the story of the colonial waves, and the first one being the Spanish, and the second being a, the American colonial project. And so the uh, second project, which I will be working on in the next few years, will be about the, uh, the American colonial project, telling stories about um, the assassination of the first uh, New Mexican government, Charles Bent, um, telling the story of Sutter's Fort and the gold rush and trying to tell it from perspectives that are not, stories are not normally told, right, from indigenous and Chicano native and mestizo perspectives. And so how do people follow your writing, your work, and how do people stay up on everything that you're doing? Oh, that's a good question. I have a tough time following and staying up on what I'm doing myself. But uh, you can go to uh, leanos.net, which is my website, uh, leanos.net, L-E-A-N-O-S.net. And hopefully the, there will be some updates there, no? 
Well, we hope so. We're going to leave people with this great song. Deuce Eclipse, the MC on this song, is one of our favorites. So we have him in a lot and we love his music. And this is just a powerful way for people to just get a sense of the tone and the energy that is featured in Frontera, Revolt and Rebellion on the Rio Grande that people can access. Also, people can go and see and talk to you and talk to other filmmakers as part of this great festival. Muchísimas gracias, John. Gracias a ti. My eye, 1675, el Rio Grande, in crisis, abusive lives. Los soldados y los padres abusando a las madres del pueblo. Miro para arriba, miro sangre en el cielo. Mataron al curandero, quemaron mi kiva, mi vida le vale huevo. But I was born a rebel, el conquistador, the Spanish Inquisition. The cities of gold, the murderous missions. Can't practice my culture, destroyed by a vulture. Forced into hunger, a gun sounds like thunder. Indigenous accused, now how long will this last? When the Kachina dance. Is a beauty's witchcraft, revolt in secret, rebellious we get. Massacre my people, we gon' make you regret. Revolution is the solution, no oppression, freedom the lesson. Inquisition, power position, but we are blessed in the way. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. I have in the studio today Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, the author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States and many other books. She's also an activist and has been for many decades now. Welcome, bienvenidos, Roxanne, to La Raza Chronicles. Thank you, Nina. I'm so happy to be here with you. I think one of the things that you're probably best known for, besides being a historian and the author of many fine books, is being a public intellectual, something much bigger than being a professor or being an author, being a really active part of developing our minds, which is right now so needed because they've been so damaged by the state of constant war, constant commercialism that we're living under. So I'm very grateful to you for the work that you do. Thank you, Nina. That's a real compliment. So you wrote this book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and it has a very remarkable author's note. I wonder if you would share that with us as a preface to any other discussion. Yes, the author's note, my editor asked me to write to tell about myself. It's important. I've written three memoirs, so I always feel like my life is is such an open book anyway. And it's kind of hard to make a capsule, but this is what I, I did here and kind of how my life has led up to actually writing. So I'll read it for you. As a student of history, having completed a master's degree and PhD in the discipline, I am grateful for all I learned from my professors and from the thousands of texts I studied. But I did not gain perspective presented in this book from those professors or studies. This came from outside the academy. My mother was part Indian, most likely Cherokee, born in Joplin, Missouri, unenrolled and orphaned, having lost her mother to tuberculosis at age four, and with an Irish father who was itinerant and alcoholic, she grew up neglected and often homeless, along with a younger brother. Picked up by authorities on the streets of Harrow, Oklahoma, the town to which their father had relocated the family, she was placed in foster homes where she was abused, expected to be a servant, and she would run away. When she was 16, she met and married my father, of Scots-Irish settler heritage, 18, and a high school dropout who worked as a cowboy on the sprawling cattle ranch in the Osage Nation. I was the last of their four children. As a sharecropper family in Canadian County, Oklahoma, we moved from one cabin to another. I grew up in the midst of rural Native American communities in the former treaty territory of the Southern Cheyenne and Arapaho nations that had been allotted and open to settlers in the late 19th century. Nearby was the Federal Indian Boarding School at Concho. Strict segregation ruled among the black, white, and Indian towns, churches, and schools in Oklahoma. And I had little interchange with Native people. My mother was ashamed of being part Indian. 
she died of alcoholism. In California during the 1960s, I was active in the civil rights, anti-apartheid, anti-Vietnam War, and women's liberation movements, and ultimately the pan-Indian movement that some labeled Red Power. I was recruited to work on Native issues in 1970 by the remarkable Tuscarora traditionalist organizer Mad Bear Anderson, who insisted that I must embrace my Native heritage, however fragile it might be. Although hesitant at first, following the Wounded Knee Siege of 1973, I began to work locally, around the country, and internationally with the American Indian Movement and the International Indian Treaty Council. I also began serving as an expert witness in court cases, including that of the Wounded Knee Legal Defendants bringing me into discussions with Lakota Sioux elders and activists. Based in San Francisco during the volatile and historic period, I completed my doctorate in history in 1974 and then took a position teaching in the new Native American Studies program. My dissertation was on the history of land tenure in New Mexico, and during 1978-81, I was visiting director of Native American Studies at the University of New Mexico. There, I collaborated with the All-Indian Pueblo Council, Mescalero Apache Nation, Navajo Nation, and the Denia Hina Nahili DNA People's Legal Services, as well as with Native students, faculty, and communities in developing a research institute and a seminar training program in economic development. I have lived with this book for six years, starting over a dozen times before I settled on a narrative thread. Invited to write this revisioning American series title, I was given parameters. It was to be intellectually rigorous, but relatively brief, and written accessibly so it would engage multiple audiences. I had grave misgivings after having agreed to this ambitious project. Although it was to be a history of the United States as experienced by indigenous inhabitants, how could I possibly do justice to that varied experience over a span of two centuries? How could I make it comprehensible to the general reader who would likely have little knowledge of Native American history on the one hand, but might consciously or unconsciously have a set narrative of U.S. history on the other? Since I was convinced of the inherent importance of the project, I persisted, reading or rereading books and articles by North American indigenous scholars, novelists, and poets, as well as unpublished dissertations, speeches, and testimonies, truly an extraordinary body of indigenous work. I've come to realize that a new periodization of U.S. history is needed that traces the indigenous experience as opposed to following the standard division, colonial, revolutionary, Jacksonian, civil war, reconstruction, industrial revolution, gilded age, overseas imperialism, progressivism, World War I, depression, New Deal, World War II, Cold War, and Vietnam, followed by contemporary decades. I altered this periodization to better reflect indigenous experience, but not as radically as needs to be done. This is an issue much discussed in current Native American scholarship. I also wanted to set aside the rhetoric of race, not because race and racism are unimportant, but to emphasize that Native peoples were colonized and deposed of their territories as distinct peoples, hundreds of nations, not as a racial or ethnic group. Colonization, dispossession, settler colonialism, genocide. These are the terms that drill to the core of U.S. history, to the very source of the country's existence. The charge of genocide, once unacceptable by establishment, academic, and political classes when applied to the United States, has gained currency as evidence of it has mounted, but it is too often accompanied by an assumption of disappearance. So I realized it was crucial to make the reality and significance of indigenous people's survival clear throughout the book. Indigenous survival as peoples is due to centuries of resistance and storytelling passed through the generations. And I sought to demonstrate that this survival is dynamic, not passive. Surviving genocide by whatever means is resistance. Non-Indians must know this in order to be more accurately Non-Indians must know this in order to more accurately understand the history of the United States. My hope is that this book will be a springboard to dialogue about history, the present reality of indigenous people's experience, and the meaning and future of the United States itself.
Thank you, Roxanne Dunbar-Arcees, author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States. We're very excited here at KPFA because you're going to be speaking on October 2nd about this book. What can we expect to learn? Well, I think it's not unknown in in the literature and, and certainly subconsciously in the United States by the general population, at least now, that this continent was dynamically populated with people's vast majority of whom were farmers who lived in towns. This is a very important concept that was obscured historically very purposely to create the idea of vacant lands, terra nullius, that as Israel, Zionism puts it, a land without people for a people without land. So the Europeans who came, especially the intellectual core of those who came, pilgrims, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Puritans, who set the ideology of the United States, had almost exactly the same narrative that Zionism has. They called this territory Zion. They called it the New Jerusalem. This land was destined for them. It was not their right. It was their responsibility to take and make this land civilized. So that required that there were only savages running around in the forest. Amazingly, that's how Israel portrays Palestinians running around in in the desert. The eliminationism built into uh, the core. So even the best of historians, like Howard Zinn's beautiful People's History of the United States, he does such an incredible job of setting up that narrative of genocide, of the taking. But then, as, as I said in, the, in my author's note, that this acknowledging genocide so often leads to the sadness of disappearance. Oh, they're all gone. But they were never gone, just like the Jews were never gone because of the Holocaust. Genocide isn't ever completely successful. It's the attempted genocide and the breaking up of people through that, through that process. So people get confused. I think that that's the main problem because of that earlier narrative that had the Native people not even there. Now people know they were there, but they were all killed. And so even in Howard Zinn's narrative, he kind of, after the massacre, the genocide at Wounded Knee in 1890, you don't hear about Indians again until, wow, they took over Alcatraz. Amazing. You know, well, what happened in those 78 years? They were still there. So that other things happened, more important things happened. But what those other things that happened were totally based on what happened with the Indians. So the main theme of this book is that the current United States in the world as an imperialist power, as a militaristic interventionist uh, entity, as like the Sandinistas used to say in their anthem, the enemy of mankind, <laughs> that that was all got built upon in that century of war against the Native people the destruction of the Native nations, a brutal counterinsurgent war that created the concept of counterinsurgency, of ranging. The Texas entity was called the Texas Rangers. There were the Alabama Rangers. And they were basically civic people who, like National Guard, who donned the uniform to fight the enemy. And the enemy were the Indians. So it's almost as if it's a a violence addiction, you know, to step out from that stage and that it's then the role in the world. That probably gets a little bit too psychoanalytical, but uh, it because underneath it is this, I think, hard for ordinary people to completely grasp, even though it's in our name and also in our DNA, because we grow up here, greed the taking, the possession. So it's not just psychological. So we have to deal with how the United States became the largest military and economic power in the world. We can't do that by just saying it was manifest destiny or it was accidental or the United States just kind of fell into this role, which is really what you hear Thomas Friedman saying. It's the U.S. role. It fell to us. It's so sad that we, we have to make these sacrifices and save the world all the time. But it's that it's the continuation of that. Unless we understand those roots, we won't understand who we are now. 
I don't think most U.S. citizens, much less other people in the world, really do understand who we are and believe the rhetoric of freedom we put forth as our goal in the world, that underneath that is a, a darkness that has not been uncovered. And I hope I've done that in this book without being too morbid, uh, like Chris Hedges <laughs> sometimes gets. I, I had that in mind all the time because I kind of cringe when I read Chris Hedges. It's very visceral, but I also wanted to have some hope that people, especially though I'm mainly interested in social justice advocates and activists of, across the board, that we get clear on what the United States is because in all of our movements, we keep spinning around and we look back to the 60s. Well, why didn't more come out of that? Yeah, a lot of things came out of it, things, but not a really deep structural change. I'm very fascinated by what you said about the Native peoples living in towns and being farmers. I always think of, for example, the local Native population, the Ohlone's, that, mm -hmm. that they were nomadic, that they would go down to Palo Alto when it got chilly mm -hmm. in San Francisco and come back when the weather and the hunting and the fishing was good. I wish you would talk more about this idea of towns. I mean, yes, we know that Mexico had a complicated civilization with cities. and But what about right here in California? Well, I compare it to other continents. You have uh, geographical entities, let's say Western Europe up to the Urals. You have on all the coastlines, you have fishermen. And fishermen are partly, you might say, nomadic. They go out to sea sometimes for days. They go to other fishing camps and so forth. Very similar to all the, the coastal Indians here and in, on the Atlantic coast. Then you have, not so much in Europe, but in other parts of the world, China, for instance, you have desert areas. Well, you do in the southwest where either there's a pastoral culture of some sort, which was in the southwest, or there's a irrigation uh, agriculture. There are five centers of the world where what they call civilization got started, and that means farming, agricultural society. And three of them are in the, Amer the Americas, three out of five. One is in, there's six, two in Asia, China, and one in the Tigris-Euphrates. The other three are in the, in the Americas, one in Inca territory, one in Central Amer Mexico, and one in the whole southeast, what's now the southeast and northeast of the United States, North America. These are the rich agricultural areas of the world, except for that well-watered area of eastern part of North America. They were irrigation cultures, so dry, dry areas. I'm talking about numerically majority populations. Agriculture produces very, can produce very, very large, well-fed populations, very healthy, hardy, and long-living, and they build towns and societies. Most of the big civilizations like Mexico that existed in the Mississippi River Valley were already, like in Yucatan, were already gone by the time the Europeans came. They call them mounds. They're, they're now fields, but they're whole very developed city-states like in central Mexico. But people devolved into farming communities and to towns, the Muscogee Creek people and the Cherokees in the southeast and the Iroquois Confederacy, which is five different nations of the Iroquois. And corn is the basic food. And of course, that came out of central Mexico. So you can't really even talk about North America or that matter, South America, without talking about the origin of corn in Central America and its diffusion from Tierra del Fuego to the Arctic Circle, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So that's why the first chapter of my book is called Follow the Corn, where I show that integration. And then because I'm going to be talking about only about Native people in North America, they can't be cut off from that because the Choctaws have stories and there's now much evidence of they're actually migrating from Central, Central America, Mesoamerica to the Gulf of Mexico and rebuilding. The Natchez Nation was the largest southeastern nation. It was the victim of almost total genocide by the Spanish 
because that was Spanish territory before the English came. But this genocide, you know, the genocide of the Spanish in those early days has to be understood within the context of deportation, not just killing every single person. Western Nicaragua and Western Honduras was depopulated by shipping those people, conquering them. They were farmers, Nahuatl-speaking farmers, who had migrated down from Central Mexico, uh, deporting them to the mines of Peru. So the Natchez Nation, they went through the same kind of middle passage as enslaved Africans. When they were like the Natchez people, they took them around the Cape and down up to Peru. It was easier with Nicaragua and Honduras just to go deport them straight down. And the most famous conquistadors were actually uh, the main commercial merchants who did this, De Soto and Others, that was their trade, you know, in slaves. So there was a great deal of displacement of peoples before the English came in the southeast, the Natchez Nation. There was some, some other people taken into slavery. So when the United States came, the Spanish and the Portuguese and the Dutch had been in, in North America, had been more than a century, 1598, as opposed to 1607, a little over a century. But for... About 30 years before that, the English merchant ships were fishing off the coast of North America, the Atlantic coast, and the native people would go out and trade with them. So there was a trading system. These were not colonizing missions at all. It was trade, normal trade, and I think the native people welcomed it. There were items, of consumer items that were attractive, and then they had food. They could feed these people, take them corn, take them deer, feed the people on the ships as trade, and sometimes work work with them, and sometimes even go back to England, you know, and become English or whatever. But one thing that happened there in New England was this, which was a very, very rich agricultural area with, you know, towns all over and, and Deer Park. We know that term, but I think we often know what it means. I, I guess we think it's, you know, deer roaming around the field. But what Native people did is, you know, the whole idea of the hunter, which is, is an invention of, of settler colonialism, because who would go out and knock around in the woods, you know, hunting, when you could create in the forest this grassland where all the the deer and the antelope and all would come and graze. And whenever you needed meat, you just go out and catch one. So they basically domesticated wild game by making the peripheral area very, very seductive to them, to attract them. So even the hunting is a kind of misnomer for, you know, the agricultural people who indeed the deer and the antelope were very important important part of their their diet. Also in the Southwest, Englishmen wrote about being able to drive their their buggies, their carriages through the trees in the deer parks. You know, they were very manicured. So the idea of an untouched kind of a state of nature anywhere in the Americas did not exist. Native people had transformed for their own uses, most usually without severe destruction. But there are cases of destruction, clearly the Mayans in Yucatan, using too much wood, denuding the forests of wood. They did that. The The ancestors of the Pueblo Indians were in Mesa Verde. They built a huge civilization. Irrigation ditches that were 15 feet in diameter and, and sealed so that they were waterproof. Vast civilization there. And in their own stories they tell, and it's easy for ar- archaeologists to see, they uh, they used wood for all of these things. So they denuded, you know, and, and ran out of wood. And it made also farming more difficult because the watershed wasn't good. So they relocated their entire civilization, moved to the Rio Grande Valley, where they are today, 98 city-states along the river from south of Albuquerque to the Colorado border. So, and they downsized everything. Their cities were smaller. They they learned from their ecological error. It's not that they didn't make the errors, but they learned from them because their systems were not commercial and exploitative. But that doesn't mean they didn't sometimes exploit nature uh, in a negative way that affected them. What would you say was the message of your book? Oh, that's a good question. I think I actually, you want me to read a little bit? Yes, please. Because my very last little bit in here, so the last subtext of the conclusion is called The Future. 
How then can U.S. society come to terms with its past? How can it acknowledge responsibility? The late Native historian Jack Forbes always stressed that while living persons are not responsible for what their ancestors did, they are responsible for the society they live in, which is a product of that past. Assuming this responsibility provides a means of survival and liberation, everyone and everything in the world is affected, for the most part negatively, by U.S. dominance and intervention. Often violently through direct military means, it is an urgent concern. Historian and teacher Juan Gomez Quinones writes, American Indian ancestries and heritage ought to be integral to K-12 curriculums and university explorations and graduate expositions with full integration of Native American histories and cultures into academic curriculums. Gomez Quinones coins a measure of intelligence in the United States, the indigenous quotient how we judge whether people are intelligent or not. Indigenous peoples offer possibilities for life after empire, possibilities that neither erase the crimes of colonialism nor require the disappearance of the original peoples colonized under the guise of including them as individuals, as assimilation. That process rightfully starts by honoring the treaties the United States made with indigenous nations by restoring all sacred sites, starting with the Black Hills and including most federally held parks and land and all stolen sacred items and body parts, and by payment of sufficient reparations for the reconstruction and expansion of Native nations. In the process, the continent will be radically reconfigured physically and psychologically. For the future to be realized, it will require extensive educational programs and full support and active participation of the descendants of settlers, the descendants of enslaved Africans, and of colonized Mexicans, as well as immigrant populations. In the words of Acoma poet Simon Ortiz, the future will not be mad with loss and waste, though the memory will be there, eyes will become kind and deep, and the bones of this nation will mend after the revolution. I'm hoping this book gives a kind of architecture for beginning to learn, and I really want people to form study group, try to figure it out. They don't have to agree with everything, but you really have to develop a different frame of reference almost entirely in order to understand this country. Well, thank you so much, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, the author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and she'll be speaking on October 2nd exactly on this topic. Thank you, Nina. Vas caminando, no sabes qué hacer. Vas caminando y no puedes ni ver. Y te ocultas del tiempo, llegas al mar. Llegas muy lejos, vuelves a empezar. Y Caliente a los pasos ligeros, a las fotos del baúl, a los ojos sinceros, al cálido viento, a la eterna mañana, al tiempo que te alcanza para andar y para más. That was music by local singer Diana Gameros. She'll be playing at the Studio Grand Performance Venue in Oakland with Maria Jose Montijo this Sunday, September 28th at 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. If you still don't have plans for Sunday evening, make sure to not miss out. Thank <laughs> you.
That is the beautiful music played by Gerardo Marin. He is here with us with Rafael Jesus Gonzalez. They are both working closely together to work towards healing, to work towards healing not just ourselves and our bodies, but also our planet. So thank you both for being here. It's really such an honor. Gracias a ti, Julieta. Gracias, Julieta. So we're going to start off, um, Rafael Jesus Gonzalez, you are a longtime activist, poet, educator, someone who has dedicated himself to tell the stories that are often ignored and also distorted. And so you have done a lot of thinking and writing about the creation of nation states and what that has meant in terms of the world and how we see, view each other and also how that plays out in terms of current events like the wars we see. So, Rafael, this is September. It's a month of Las Patrias are happening. We don't learn in school much history in terms of how our countries gain their independence and why they all happen to happen in September. So why don't you break down some of these lesser talked about reasons and some of the reasons why a lot of people are celebrating right now. Well, first of all, we must realize that the birth of all these nations, including the United States, came about through the move of empire by Europe to uh, colonize, to conquer a world that to them was completely new. Although heaven only knows they had been inhabited by millenniums by other peoples. And uh, the colonies were, of course, always founded to the benefit of the mother country. The colonies of New England were answering to the economic needs of Great Britain, and the colonies of Spain were responding to the needs of Spain. And many of the policies of Spain to their colonies was abusive in a way. You know, people often wonder why wine was never developed in Mexico, the cultivation of grapes and the venting of wines. And that was because it was prohibited by Spanish law so that the American wines would not compete with Spanish wines. It's interesting that nevertheless grapes were grown, but what grapes uh, there were were turned into brandy. You have one of the oldest vineyards in Mexico, which is the Madero Vineyards in Coahuila, in Gomez Palacios, that goes back to very early times of the colonizations. Now, you ask an interesting question of why it was in the month of September of uh, 1815, around that area, that you started getting the independence of the states of the Latin American states what became eventually state of the colonies. And that was because Spain herself had lost her independence. She had been conquered by the French forces of Napoleon Bonaparte. And actually, his brother Joseph Bonaparte was sitting on the Spanish throne when uh, Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla raised his cry for, for independence. Joseph Bonaparte was put on the throne of Spain in 1805, so it was considerably later that, uh, or a bit later, that the cry for independence was raised. Now, one thing we have to realize that all these nations or all these colonies that declared their independence and became nations were nevertheless, for all their cry of independence, were extensions of European imperialism. The conquest of the new world has never been completed, and it is still going on. The resistance to European domination has been ongoing from the time that Christopher Columbus stumbled upon the shores of the new world. With great bloodshed, suffering of genocide, and it still is going on. It still is going on. The indigenous population of South America is not an empowered part of those societies. The wealth is still in the hands of those of European descent. And the struggle goes on. Now, it goes on, perhaps we might say even greater now. Well, it's hard to compare historical periods. But with the so-called move of globalization, which the United States has defined as the imposition of unbridled capitalism upon the world, 
the South American, the Latin American states find themselves in a like situation to when they were colonies of Spain. With the so-called uh, globalization and the imposition of such treaties as the so-called free trade treaties, become nothing less than the further enslavement of the indigenous populations. Those free trade treaties are not made for the benefit of the working class of either countries. They are treaties made by those who will profit by them, which is the oligarchies, the plutocracies in those countries. Those treaties are made between the rich for the benefit of the rich. Rafael Jesus Gonzalez, thank you for giving us this background. So I know that you've been doing a lot of thinking about the creation of nations in general. So why don't you give us some of your final thoughts on this? And we'd also love to hear some of your poetry on this issue. Thank you, Julieta. Uh, I have come to become, I have come to be very suspicious of the very notion of nation. The notion of nation tends to produce a very... Uh, Periarchal mode of thinking. It forms identifications, it molds identifications of a national identity that can then be manipulated by the governments in control, which tend to be those that have hold of the wealth. And then they can raise levels of passion in the name of patriotism where they can use their citizenry as cannon fodder to protect the interests of those who own the government, the plutocracies. So I consider myself a citizen of the world, and my loyalty is more to the earth than to any given <laughs> parcel of it <laughs> named a certain way. And on that note, we'd love to hear your writing on the subject. Fiestas Patrias. Ha llegado el día en que todas fiestas patrias me repugnan. Y todas fronteras me aprietan demasiado. ¿Qué es este orgullo de nación? Estas banderas sean águilas o estrellas. No importan los colores. Solo sirven para disfrazar canallas. Si no representan justicia y paz, abajo con ellas. Patriotic Holidays The day has come in which all patriotic holidays disgust me, and all borders fit me too tightly. What is this pride of nation, this flag's be they eagles or stars, it doesn't matter the colors. They only serve to disguise scoundrels. If they do not stand for justice and peace, down with them. We've been very fortunate to have in the studio with us Rafael Jesus Gonzalez, educator, poet, 
activist, someone who's been dedicated to writing about these issues for a long time, as well as Gerardo Marin, who has also been committed to justice work for quite some time. So how can people connect to your writing and how do people connect to the community healing work that you are both doing together? Well, I have a literary blog and that is R-J-G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-Z dot blogspot.com. Aside from Maestro Rafael's blog, you can connect with him there and also my personal email address to connect with our Chicano men's group, Xochipilli, that uh, facilitates rituals and uh, healing support systems for our activists, educators, social workers to reconnect with Source, with Mother Earth, with our energy and that solidarity. So I can be reached at G-E-R-A, Hera, at rootedincommunity.org. And Maestro Rafael can be connected to on that blog spot that he shared. Muchísimas gracias a los dos. Gracias a ti, Julieta. Siempre es un placer estar contigo. Un honor estar aquí. Gracias, hermana. This is the La Raza Chronicles calendar of upcoming events. On Saturday, September 27th from 8 to 11 at the Brava Theater, there'll be The Sounds of the Street, a historical and musical tribute to Latin rock at the Brava Theater, 2781 24th Street in San Francisco. There'll be guest appearances by Latin rock legends and concert with the Mission Street All-Stars and Lumbre. For more information, call Mabel Jimenez at 415-648-1054, extension 101, 415-648-1054, extension 101, to benefit El Tecolote, the bilingual newspaper. Also on Saturday, September 27th, the Community Music Center located in San Francisco will be presenting Mexican soprano artist Rocio Jimenez. The evening's performance will include boleros, opera, and canciones latinoamericanas with special guest Angelica Lopez. The performance will be taking place at the Community Music Center located at 544 Cap Street in San Francisco at 7 p.m. On Saturday, September 27th at 6.30 p.m., 100,000 Poets for Change at the Unitarian Universalist Church, Franklin at Geary in San Francisco. A call for change from the Revolutionary Poets Brigade, Poet Laureate Emeritus Jack Hirschman, Poet Laureate Alejandro Burguia, Hiroshima survivor Takashi Tanemori, Tony Sierra, activist lawyer for human rights, and poets D. Allen, Adrian Arias, Virginia Barrett, John Curl, Karen Melanda Magoon, Dorothy Payne, Nina Serrano, Dan Grady, Agneta Falk, Barbara Poschke, Yolanda Carrasco, Rosemary Mano, and many others asking for hope, truth, and love to change a world of violence and brutality to one free of war and hatred. That's Saturday, September 27th, 6.30, Unitarian Universalist Church, Franklin at Geary, in San Francisco. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you want to hear tonight's program again, or any of our past programs, you can go to soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles. Remember to also like us on Facebook, where you can check out updates and postings on news, arts, and culture from across the Americas. Stay tuned next week for more Noticia, Arte y Cultura con un sabor latino. Hasta la próxima y buenas noches.